Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast, Focus Compounding Capital Management, Focus Compounding the website, sitting alongside Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? I'm feeling pretty sick, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm feeling I'm feeling amazing. You Good. can't I am very healthy, not feeling sick. I am excited to talk today. We are going to be in New York if you like to talk. We're gonna be in New York, November eleventh through the 15th mm-hmm. for prospective investors. If you want to learn a little bit more about what we're doing uh, with the new fund that we are launching January 1st of 2020, or just to manage accounts in general, um, reach out to invest at focusedcompounding.com. We did put a new presentation that goes over the terms between the managed accounts and the fund on our invest with us page on focus compounding. Uh, so go to focuscompounding.com and then to the right, you'll see invest with us. So definitely click that and you'll find our presentation and pretty much everything that you would ever want to know about if you should or should not invest with us. Okay. So in today's video, we're going to be going over and doing a full appraisal of over-the-counter markets, ticker OTCM. It is a stock that we own. Um, it's a company that we've owned for some clients for a very long time. It's a very small position relative to our other holdings in the portfolio for the managed accounts. position, I believe. It is. It's roughly, uh, depending on the client, maybe, you know, six to seven to eight percent. So it's very small. Uh, it was a larger position at one point that we uh, paired back. Um, but they actually just released earnings yesterday. The stock is currently trading at $33 a share. It has a market cap of $384 million, an enterprise value of $300 78 million and then i am going to be referencing information from quickfs.net if you want uh to follow along again that is otcm over the counter markets is the stock okay and it's also has a full write-up on focus compounding it does have a full write-up i think 29 dollars a share i believe so yeah it was written up by a member of focus compounding not by me that's but, correct. But we did own the stock at that time, still do. But I mean, at the time that write-up happened, we owned the stock. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we're going to talk about maybe how what its value should be and things like that, appraising it. Great. So um, the first thing is we'll use tenure data, things like that, uh, similar to what we did with our uh, podcast where we went through like the first five minutes of looking at a stock. Yeah. Okay. So let's just go over what range do we see for their operating margin? Sure. The, uh, the range from 2010 to 2018, um, it looks like it's gone from 19, um, well, I guess I could tell you right here, 10-year uh, median margins for EBIT has been roughly 30%. Okay. Uh, so very high margin business. Uh, even the free cash flow margin has been 25%. So pretty much a lot of the earnings, a lot of uh, EBIT, all of that pretty much translates into free cash flow for the company. Right. So the reason why there's a high free cash flow <clears throat> conversion, so if you look at the relationship between free cash flow margin and operating margin, it's unusually high for this company, especially because in past years, they should have been paying a very high tax rate. Uh, until the tax cut happened. So, because basically they produce all their income in the US. So, um, you would expect much, much lower free cash flow than uh, operating margin. Yeah. The fact that it's close means that there's some aspect of uh, flow that has to be happening. Here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, we know, because we know this company, there are subscription businesses. Basically, they get um, paid in advance for something. So they do a couple of things. Um, one, they collect money from uh, broker-dealers, basically market makers in OTC markets, um, which is, uh, you can also go to their website, otcmarkets.com. Which yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, we use that for a lot of the companies that we look at mm -hmm. to get like trading data and right. all that sort of stuff. And we should point out, they trade on their own over-the-counter. Yeah. So um, they, you can see information there. This is not, uh, this stock doesn't file with the SEC, but it isn't in any way a dark stock. It puts out a presentation, an earnings call, uh, all sorts of stuff every quarter. Um, so it also so it charges uh, broker dealers uh, basically to have access to a system to communicate with each other to place trades do things like that uh, get information on depth of quotes stuff like that yeah then it has it charges the companies to list on certain of the better exchanges it doesn't make any money off the companies on the pink sheets um, so the kind of companies that don't put out any information and stuff like that it's not making money on but companies like uh, CSVI so yeah. computer services um, and, and those sorts of things it does make money on because uh, those companies pay to have better quotes put down there have more information on market transparency but they also pay to meet certain disclosure requirements and stuff so if you look at their um, information that gets put up on OTC markets it basically looks a lot like an SEC filing, even though it's not really an SEC filing. Absolutely. So they collect uh, a one-time fee from them when they join, and then they also collect annual fees from those companies. Yeah. Um, and we could go over, I guess, really quick, too, is it overlooked? Right. Obviously, if, if it's a, you know we're invested in it, obviously that's what we care about. So the beta of, on it is 0.47, so that's a beta of less than one. So mm -hmm. obviously right from the start, okay, so it's a micro cap or you know, it's, close to yeah. it, a little bit, whatever, and uh, it has a beta of less than one. We're definitely interested in it. You go to Yahoo Finance, you can take the average three-month volume of, three, of 4,390 shares, multiply that by 252. Again, this is just a rough approximation, and they have about 11 million shares outstanding. So that tells you right there that the shares roughly only, yeah. only trade uh, 10%. So yes, definitely a very overlooked stock. And one thing that's actually pretty interesting, too, is the float is only 6.3 million. So it's probably even more right. overlooked. Um, you know, from that perspective, and I believe right. it's because the CEO he owns a pretty the yeah, CEO that's all the pretty, CEO yeah, that's, he owns a very big uh, chunk yeah, of the company. Cromwell Colson, uh, Crom his name's Cromwell, um, and uh, so who's basically sort of the founder because yep. really he took over this company um, a couple decades ago now and then changed it from there. So it's basically sort of like a refounding kind of situation. Um, the beta being that low is very interesting because obviously this is a stock that because it's it operates an OTC market uh, business is completely tied to stocks, publicly yeah. traded mm -hmm. companies. Yeah. So it, they aren't they don't make money on transaction volume based stuff, but obviously um, the level of activity and things like that are tied sort of to like an IPO cycle. So it is somewhat cyclical that way. It hasn't been that cyclical in its past, but we don't have data going that far back. Um, so you'd expect the beta to be one or higher, actually, on something that like uh, a stock exchange or something like that, which is sort of what this company is. But it's not. So that gives you an idea it's overlooked. The other thing that really gives you an idea it's overlooked is the uh, bid ask spread is very wide on this stock. Yeah, I was yeah. say when when the, when the stock trades, it moves. Yeah, for sure. What's interesting is pe people um, usually trade in bigger blocks on this stock. There's very little. I see very little activity in smaller uh, trades on this one. So you do have some investors buying a lot or selling a lot at the same time. Uh, what kind of liquidity you don't have is a lot of like 100 shares at a time kind of thing. You don't see that that much in this stock. Um, 
So let's talk about the enterprise value to sales and things like that. Sure. So the EV to sales currently is is seven. Right. Um, so I guess if someone wants to, you know, refer to what we used in the last, um, you know, the last podcast, we'd probably for it to be cheap. Right. right? now, of course, this is trading at twenty four times, roughly mm-hmm. twenty five times PE. Uh, we'd be looking for a seventy percent operating, which is going to happen. Yeah, but they have achieved about half of that sometimes. So they have had an operating margin around thirty five percent, probably. Yeah. In um, uh, they're capable of kind of doing an operating margin probably thirty to forty uh, percent on a multiple basis. This definitely was a more expensive company that it's we the have most bought. expensive company yeah. we've ever owned. Yeah. Um, uh, not only that, I mean, we bought it a little cheaper than this, uh, quite a bit cheaper than this, but. Um, it it's, was the most expensive when we bought it that we've owned, and it's also about the most expensive any stock we've continued to hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, kind of spoiling uh, the conclusion here, the reason we don't own more of this is simply price. Uh, so we've never owned as much as I would like, like a 20% or so position is kind of our normal position. And we just don't own that because it, the stock price did not go down and stay down for us to buy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that means that you're at about half of what a normal stock would trade at. So if they're having uh, operating margin of, let's say, 30 to 40%, and yet your enterprise value to sales is seven to eight times, then you're, uh, I should say, you're trading at about double what we would like to yeah. pay normally. So we'd like to pay, you know, 10 times <coughs> pre tax income or something like that. With tax cuts recently, maybe it's 12 times pre tax income is the normal price now. 12 tax. 12 times pre-tax income now is 15 to 16 times after tax for a lot of companies. Um, But we really focus on free cash flow. So that complicates things a little bit because when we look at a company, we don't think if it, we don't say, okay, it's trading at 12 times pre-tax income, which converts to like six, 15 or 16 times after tax with no leverage. Um, we say, okay, but how much of that is actually free cash flow? And for most companies, it's going to be lower. It could be for some asset-heavy companies, you know, 80% or something. Um, for your average company, it might be 90 or 95% or something like that. Here, it's basically free cash flow is about the same as the um, earnings. I mean, yeah. if you look at the EV to free cash flow, it's actually a bit lower than the PE, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 So the EV to free cash flow is uh, 18.6 times and the current PE is 24.7 times. Right. Now this year I think free cash will be lower which we could get into because Yeah, let's get into uh, that because we talked about that. Okay. So like they just reported um, quarterly results and the quarterly results are good uh, and what we were expecting in terms of revenue and stuff like that, but they're investing a lot in uh, expansion. So they're opening a new office in London. They moved their headquarters to a more upscale place in New York. They invested in data center stuff and they hired uh, only about a dozen people, but the company only employed like 80 some people when we bought into it. So that's a big increase in the employment. And uh, I'd say two thirds of their operating expenses are compensation. And then then operating expenses are probably about two thirds of their... um, uh, of their sales, probably. So we're talking about, um, you know, uh, whatever that is, 40% or something that would be employee-related costs. So mm-hmm. when they increase headcount and stuff, that's a big deal. Um, that's mostly what they pay for. So very asset light. Uh, as a result, their earnings are down now. Their EBITDA and things like that are down, but their revenue in all different lines is up anywhere from, you know, seven, eight, nine percent. Actually, they gave, they gave guidance on that too, that mm-hmm. they were going to spend more money for that. Yeah, but it results in this will be lower free cash flow and stuff this year. They did also announce a special dividend. Um, they don't buy back as much stock as we'd like, but it's illiquid, so there are reasons why that might be part of the problem. Sure. So, but they do declare special dividends from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on 
how you think about like the valuation of the company. Right. So it's currently trading at, like I said, $33 uh, that we're recording this. That's a 24.7, we'll call it 25 times uh, PE or 19 times um, EV to free cash flow. How right. would you think about valuing this company? So here's the problem. Uh, it We should uh, value it a lot higher. So it's it's cheap. Basically, by looking at it mathematically, it tells me it's undervalued. So how how do you get to that conclusion? Okay, so because somebody could look at it and be like, okay, you guys always talk about basically, you know, a general rule of thumb is thirteen times earnings. Right. So this company's currently trading at twenty five times earnings. Why is it cheap? Okay, start ten year nine years ago or whatever you have there, and read the return on equity number to me. <laughs> yep. So you we don't have to give me the year; just give me the percent. Yeah, percent. we kind of learned that. From <laughs> okay, <laughs> just, we're going back to two thousand ten. Right? Okay, but it was thirty five percent. I'm rounding. Thirty five percent. 44%, and then last year was 108%. Okay, so that's their after-tax return on equity. Yes. Yes, and uh, how much leverage have they used during that time? None. They've I mean, never used diminutive, yeah, nothing. No, yeah. it's anti-leverage. They've yeah. actually held a little bit of cash during the year. Cash builds up during the year. Uh-huh. So they have no yeah, leverage none, whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. If you compare market cap, to, yeah, they're, they yeah. have no doubt. They don't even yeah. use meaning, they, they lease some stuff, just to some office space, but they don't even use meaningful off-balance sheet stuff. Yeah. Um, so basically infinite returns on capital is mm-hmm. what that's telling you. Yeah. Okay. And so any growth that you have is completely valuable. So what happens is when you have an infinite return on capital, it becomes very easy to do a calculation. So if you assume that the stock is has a perpetual life, this is very different from a bond, um, that it will exist forever and have cash flows forever. If you assume that and you assume it never has to put actual capital of yours back into the business shareholders' money, then the real calculation that you should do is that the yield that you need now is just the amount that you're not getting enough of from the growth. So basically it is, we talk about free cash flow plus growth. Yeah. Free cash flow yield plus growth here is all that you need. So okay. the amount that it should trade at in terms of like EV to free cash flow or price to free cash flow really is um, the reversed number of the percent that you need. So let's say the market will return 8% a year. Yeah. And that would make it fairly valuable. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you think this stock can grow 6% a year forever? Sure. It will grow its free cash flow. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if it can, then it could trade at 50 times free cash flow. And okay, so how'd you do that math? Well, 50 times free cash flow is a 2% free cash flow yield, 6% growth okay, so forever. Let's break it down. Right? Okay. So 50%, so you're doing the inverse to get... One, 50 over 1 yes. is the same. 50 over 1, we flip it. Yes. We get 1 over 50 is yes. 2%. Got it. Yes. Okay. I shall make sure that everyone's following along. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So that's what we do. So when we look at those things, we think in terms of yields. I think in terms of yields. So yeah. when you give me a number like a, a PE of 25 or something, I'm thinking that's a 4% yield, yes. earnings yield. Yeah. I'm not really thinking it's 25 Which times is earnings. The Right. Everyone gets mm-hmm. that. Okay. okay. So what I'm saying is that if you grow 6% a year forever, and the problem is it may not be forever, but we could assume it's forever here, um, then you would need a really low number, which is only about 2%, which means that it could theoretically not underperform the market even if it traded at 50 times free cash flow. Okay. So uh, why? how are you getting the 50 times? Well, the 50 times would mean that you have a free cash flow yield of 2%. Yep. Okay. So let's think but about- how are you giving it that multiple? Well, I'm saying or why I picked six percent just as the number to have um, their actual growth. I mean, we can go over their past growth. Yeah. What, what is their ten-year uh, revenue growth? Do you think um, it was uh, what nine percent? Nine percent. Okay. Yeah. Their yeah, every line that they have that I know of, every business segment they had grew at least six percent this year. Uh-huh. Uh, some grew six, seven, nine. You know, um, but on average they grew at about that rate. Mm-hmm. Um, they they we know that they passed on some price increases um, and said that they didn't lose customers as a result of it. Yep. Um, 
it, it could be less than 6%. Maybe it's 5%. You know, maybe it's nominal GDP or something. But it could be more like 10%. Historically, it's been closer to 10%. But I wouldn't necessarily count on that. Things have shifted. Um, so the things that they get money from is like they license data. So for yeah. instance, if you go on Bloomberg, Bloomberg's their biggest customer. Uh, if you go on Bloomberg, then uh, the data that you're seeing, all of it on OTC things, is all taken from OTC markets. So they're paying for that, uh, Bloomberg. They're paying several million dollars a year for it. And then um, you also have things like, um, in fact, we know with Bloomberg, I think Bloomberg, we literally know they're paying $6 million a year for it because they disclose it. Yep. So they want to disclose, it would have to cross, um, if their revenue is $57 million, had to cross that. So Bloomberg had to have paid them $6 million last year. Um, so that kind of stuff, can you raise prices on that uh, over time? Then you have some decline in the number of broker-dealers because you have fewer market makers in these stocks over time because they acquire each other and then they only need one license, things like that. But um, on average, it could be a 6% growth. Like I said, it was 10% in the past. If you picked a lower number, then you would need a higher... Uh, and you're saying 6% growth because that's true. That's true earnings grow from the company on, like, well, on what it can actually grow. Yeah, here's the simple thing about it. You're buying a coupon at 2%, yes. okay, that grows 6% a year. Mm -hmm. You don't have to really think of it as a business. Um, literally, you can think of it like a security that is paying you 2% this year and will promise to increase at 6% a year forever. That's not normal for businesses. Normally, you can't evaluate a business that way. It's not like that kind of promise. But the reason why you could evaluate this stock that way is because we just did the math on the return on equity. And you can see, I mean, we didn't do the math on incremental return on equity, but if they started, what's 2010, what's their return on equity? Uh, 2010, it was 34. Okay, and what was it last year? 107. Right. So that actually means to get there that their incremental return on equity throughout that period was way, way higher than um, 30%. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was way, way higher than what it was near the end. It's infinite returns on, on equity. Mm -hmm. And they grew throughout that period. So the growth doesn't cost anything. You're getting it for free. Yeah. If the growth costs something, then you need a much lower um, free cash flow multiple. Okay, and that's critical. And so having a nearly infinite return on capital is important. Now, having a nearly infinite return on capital doesn't get you anything unless you have that growth. But if you knew that you'd have that growth forever, then you'd do fine. Now, their peers are things like stock exchanges and stuff. I mean, this report talks about it, but um, the on Focus Compound, you have a report, and it talks about how actually their price is lower than their peers if you take stock exchanges as their peers. Now, you could say technically stock exchanges aren't their peers. This is not technically a stock exchange, which is true. And two, no one wants to buy this probably. Um, whereas the stock exchanges probably have a premium in their stock prices because people think, investors think, that they're going to be taken over or something like that. Um, but if we're thinking of it from a long-term perspective, I don't see why OTC markets can't grow as fast sure. as stock exchanges. What do you think about like the risks are? And what are your thoughts on, I guess, the rise of... Um like cannabis stocks and I guess right. like, and, and just really pump and dumps in general that mm -hmm. typically trade on like OTC yes. like exchangers and stuff like yeah. that. Like, I mean, how does that relate to the company and how do you uh, think about that? Right. So they do have a concentration in stuff like cannabis. Yeah. Uh, Cause people ask us questions about weed stocks and things like that. And we don't usually talk about them. It is true that OTC markets is exposed to that, but it's exposed to whatever fad there is that companies start listing that way. Um, it matters more for the ones that are, I mean, it doesn't matter on the ones that are on the pink sheets pretty much. They get no direct revenue from that, though they do from market making uh, activity, from providing information on it. But um, larger stocks of that kind, and they do a lot of business with things in Canada. Their biggest international business is Canadian stocks, yeah. obviously. So um, they are exposed to all that stuff. I there'll be another fad of something else in a few years. I mean, that'll keep happening. Yeah. I don't see that as as big a risk to them as like the proposed change that they talked about today with the SEC. So there's a proposed change the SEC is asking for comments on. It'll take a while before they close it. Some bloggers that we know and stuff have 
given comments to the SEC. OTC markets will give comments. OTC markets clearly lobbied the SEC a lot on on um, this and trying to get them to shape their uh, regulations to fit what OTC markets wants more, I'm sure. Um, but it's basically that dark stocks, so not stocks that not just stocks that don't file with the SEC, but stocks that actually don't put out current financial information, um, would not be able to be quoted publicly. It's a little complicated, but they wouldn't be able to publicly be showing the quotes from market makers on them. Okay. So for retail investors, that basically dries it up. Um, retail investors count on having uh, publicly shown quotes from uh, that they're not soliciting um, from market makers. So basically, you count on being able to go to a page on OTC markets and get something from Knight or, or Citadel or whatever that has a price for you. And then they, you put in, a lot of people just put in a market order, but they put in an order based on that price as if that's the price, mm -hmm. right? Um, they don't go out and find someone themselves to make the trade with. Sure. Okay. So it's a big deal. Um, we don't actually invest in any companies that are dark that way, that don't mm -hmm. provide any financials. Yeah. Um, what I think OTC markets will try to get the SEC to do is to section things off a bit so that professional investors and investors who meet certain requirements and stuff um, are able to trade in that uh, much the same way they do now and while trying to protect retail investors from dealing with those things. It has pluses and minuses for OTC markets. The plus is that it may pr pressure more companies to provide current financial information and to uplist to sort of the higher uh, quality requirements that OTC markets has, but then it also eliminates some pink sheet companies in terms of like um, reducing the amount of trading in them. They'll still exist. There are basically some companies that don't want to trade with anyone. Uh, they don't want their shares to trade that much. You know, they're mostly family controlled or, or things like that. And um, those are a lot of what these uh, stocks are. I, I actually heard the earnings call and what the CEO said was very good um, because one thing people should know is these aren't for professional investors, really dangerous companies. We know some people who invest in them. We haven't bought any that are actually dark, but um, there are people who buy them. I mean, we had uh, Nate on the podcast and he probably would buy something that was a dark stock sometimes. Um, they, if you're a professional investor focused on financial statements and things like that, these are not promotional companies usually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to um, issue a lot of shares or they don't have a lot of options out, things like that. They're mostly just trying to operate in the dark because they've mostly been taken over by someone. Insiders have a lot of control. There are big risks with it because, and the OTC markets was saying they support the SEC in this part. One thing that's scary about it is that insiders do trade this stuff. Sure. And yeah. so that's very concerning because insiders have all the information and outsiders don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, but to be honest, they're not the stocks that would worry me the most. Uh, what would worry me the most is actually the stocks that are more liquid on pink sheets, liquid pink sheet stocks that are putting out constant press releases, hyping their stock and things like that. I'd be more worried about that. So, um, but yeah, they're trying to clean it up basically the SEC and we don't know what the result will be. It's possible that for a little while they'll be a, their business will be hurt by that. Sure. But the, the, this current iteration of OTC markets with this CEO has been based a lot on trying to kind of make the, uh, business look more and more like an exchange. Yeah. And basically I think modeling it off of aim in the UK which yeah. is a, uh, basically the way that stocks trade over the counter in the UK is on this thing called AIM, which is um, technically a London Stock Exchange thing, but actually um, it doesn't have requirements and things that are tougher than OTC markets has. So Philip Hutchinson wrote it up for the website, okay. and his title was a far above average quality company at a fair enough price. So do you, mm -hmm. when you thought about, I guess, valuing it, 
was it more so like um, you know the Buffett saying or whatever that you don't need to know a man's weight to know that he's fat? Like, are you approaching it from you think it's like? Do you have like an actual share price that you think's worth, or is it more so of uh, you know I think this could grow for a very long time? And kind of from that perspective, this is whatever you want to call it, cognitive dissonance or whatever. This is uh, the problem here is that I can know that the the, st- the stock's price on, an, on a, the kind of prices that I'm used to paying is too high. So I don't want to buy it because of that. But everything that I know about the stock tells me that I should buy it and that the it's worth more than that. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that I look at it and say it has a P of 25. We like to buy things that can do, like we talked a little bit about the Davis double play. Stocks that will grow while we own them over 10 years. So they get meaningful growth over like a projected 10-year period, but also would have meaningful returns from um, margin expansion over 10 years. The multiple expansion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. multiple expansion. And so uh, to give you an idea of that, if you have a stock that's at like six to seven times PE and it yeah. goes to 10, that will give you a meaningful several percent a year over 10 years uh, return. 10 P of 10 to 15, so one and a half times or so, same thing, 15 to 25. We've bought stocks at 15 times that we think are worth 25 times. Computer services would be an example of that. We talked about Virtue at six or seven times, which if it just even goes to 10 or something, will give you the same kinds of returns as something going from 15 to 25 over 10 years. Here, it would have to go from about 25 times earnings to about 40 times earnings to end up. You don't like to project that a company will end up at like 40 times earnings, Mm -hmm. which means that the actual returns that you'll get is just the growth in the business Mm -hmm. now they do potentially pay out all their capital the, all their free cash flow yeah. will really go out to you. They've been doing it as dividends and stuff, but they've clearly not wanted to pile it up. I don't know if they'll eventually do buybacks or something like that. There's a little share dilution drag, too. Um, I can see how this stock wouldn't outperform that well, but it is hard to see at prices as low as 25 times earnings how it would perform much worse than the um, overall market. It, I guess it could... You could say that it could if there's cyclical reasons that happen that cause a problem. I'm not sure about that. Uh, the cyclical stuff is interesting um, because on the one hand, a lot of business, these kinds of businesses go in a recession or something, they, they go out of business pretty fast. Pink sheet type companies, much more so than big companies. On the other hand, that creates lots of pressures of companies not wanting to go public and not up graduating from OTC markets to bigger exchanges. They lose their, some of their biggest um, companies when they switch to an actual IPO yeah, on the, the major exchange. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that would happen less after a big recession or something, and you'd have less IPO activity, things like that. So there are more companies doing that. There's some companies that pay a lot of money to go public now, even though they're small, they're not making money and everything, because the IPO market is so hot. In a market that was less hot, they would more likely stay on OTC. What about direct listings? Does that have any sort of effect on them? Uh, I don't know. Got it. <laughs> Very honest answer. Um, and then I guess my last question would be the CEO. I mean, obviously he kind of he bought this company out, and he's been the one that's been running it. He's got a lot of skin mm-hmm. in the game. I mean, do you have any additional thoughts or anything on on him? Uh, yeah, I like the CEO fine. Um, he does. He doesn't necessarily run it the way that a lot of value investors would think. So this company is run completely as a growth company, uh-huh. completely. So like they don't care. I mean, they care about things like free cash flow and stuff over time. It's a great business, but they will um, definitely depress earnings and stuff this year. They don't have any problem with you know dropping margins down way below what they normally are to spend a lot of money to grow. And they're doing that. Um, so, you know, it's much more of a Phil Fisher type approach than most of the kinds of companies that we're used to. Um, 
so I, w- I would say that uh, he, he has just has growth orientation, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's just something to be aware of. Sure. Got it. Cool. Well, that is uh, today's video. That is over-the-counter markets, OTCM. Um, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. Jeff and I, are we are going to be in New York November 11th through the 15th. If you'd like to do this in person with us, you are a prospective investor, want to meet up and learn a little bit more about our money management services, either through the managed accounts or the fund, reach out to invest at focuscompounding.com. Again, invest at focusedcompounding.com. Dot com. Of course, like I said at the beginning of uh, the podcast, you could go to focuscompounding.com and go to our Invest With Us page. And they'll spell a lot of different stuff out. And then you'll also see our presentation as well. I thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.